Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix is president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon, Punk Black. He joins us monthly to highlight local artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Later this hour, we'll hear from Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. First, Clarkston, Georgia is known as the most diverse square mile in the United States. About 2,500 refugees from more than 45 countries resettle there annually. In 2015, Kitty Murray established Refuge Coffee in Clarkston. The nonprofit organization employs refugees and offers them job training and mentorship. The coffee company recently opened its newest location in Midtown at the Woodruff Art Center. Kitty Marie joins me now via Zoom to talk more about this expansion and the mission of Refuge. Kitty, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. This is the biggest treat for me to be here. Thank you. What initially motivated you to create Refuge Coffee? Oh, I get asked that a lot. And I have to confess that one of the reasons was a little bit selfish. (laughs) My husband and I moved to Clarkston nine years ago. And at the time my work involved writing, I spent a lot of time in coffee shops and I love coffee shops. And at that time there wasn't one near where we lived. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a coffee shop in Clarkston? But concurrent with that thought was another reason. We moved into Clarkston and we knew a little about it, but we immediately started to get to know all our neighbors. And you've already mentioned how many countries our neighbors are from. And what that translates into is just this beautiful mashup of cultures and languages and 
also most of the people who come from those countries are survivors and they're heroic and resilient people. And so as we got to know all our neighbors, I am sort of a natural networker. And so I immediately wanted everybody in my old world to meet all my new friends in my new world. And so the thought of a coffee shop that could bring those worlds together just felt like it needed to happen. You know, I think when you live in a community, the pain points of that community become yours. And what we found ourselves thinking about, praying about, you know, pondering all the time was how can we create more jobs here in this community? Because um, there was just a need for jobs that could lead to flourishing, not just subsistence jobs or survival jobs. And so all of those kind of inner conversations in my head came together. And eventually this idea of refuge coffee was born and it wasn't born in a vacuum. There was a community around us who supported and cheered it on and became involved in it right away. So that's the story. Wow. <laughs> that's how it got started. There are so many great things that are working together in what you described. Compassion foremost among them. Would you talk about the evolution of refuge? Is it true you started selling out of a coffee truck? Yes, yes. And the funny thing is, I, you know, our kids are grown and they're a lot smarter than we are. And I told them, I said, oh, yeah, we've invited some people over that we're going to ask if they can sort of seed this idea financially. And they all said, well, mom, what's your business plan? You know, what's the plan? And honestly, if you added my business acumen and my husband's together, you would come up with a negative number. We just don't <laughs> really know business. And so I had already invited these friends over, but instead of asking for money, I just asked for their wisdom. And one of the first things they said was, why don't you start with a coffee truck? It's a, you know, it's less risky. You could get started sooner. And I didn't want to do it at first because what I pictured was something that would be rooted and, you know, have space for the community to gather. But the coffee truck was just such a brilliant idea. So we started with one truck, um, we had one full-time barista trainee and one part-time. We rented for a dollar a month, a parking lot in the center of Clarkston. And two days a week, we would set up tables and chairs and tents and have a little kind of ersatz coffee shop. And then the other days we would try to talk people into letting us cater their events. And so, and both sides of that endeavor really grew. We People wanted the shop to be open more. Eventually, we were able to um, move into the old gas station that was there. And eventually, we bought that space. And, you know, we just grew. We grew. And I think we grew because I think we grew because of our the people that work for us and with us are just so compelling. And yeah, so but that's how it started with a few chairs and and a tent. And a spirit of community, which really has a whole lot to do with coffee houses and the idea of a coffee house as a gathering place. So here you are 
welcoming refugees and neighbors to the space. What you mentioned about buying the former gas station and catering, that involved some business acumen, not to mention financing. How did you do that? Did you, your nonprofit, did you apply for grants? What was your funding? So I am the founder of Refuge, and my best definition of a founder is that you find people. (laughs) So we found people all across the board, people with means and people with just the gift of being a welcoming presence. And and we have had so many and still have so many smart, passionate people who help us. So we have a board who's, I don't know what we do without them. We have a staff who are phenomenal. And, and then people are generous. You know, I just, this endeavor, it was scary at first because we were asking people for money for something we were going to do. You know, it was just an idea. And now that we've done it, you know, more people are coming on board to help financially. We have a business model that really works, but because we want to do community events and things for our community, and because we want to include a really robust job training program, a coffee shop budget is never going to cover all that. So donors are amazing. And we do, we do get grants. We have applied for grants. At first, that was not really a possibility because of course, you know, a grant making foundation doesn't want to give to something with no track record. (laughs) So we had to develop a track record, but people took risks on us. A lot of people risked and helped and gave, and we did a lot of crowdfunding. I have to say it was exhilarating. It was scary. I felt like I was jumping off a cliff every day for the first two years, but it was, it was that good scary. You know, it's like I'm jumping off a cliff into a lagoon with a lot of friends who were swimming, you know, mm-hmm. like it didn't, it was, a, it was a good thing. And one of the things that we've realized the more we do this is that we aren't doing something for our refugee community at all. We're doing something with our refugee community and many of our staff are refugee and immigrants. The people who actually do the work of serving coffee are refugees and immigrants. And we do job training, but we don't have to teach them how to be compassionate, welcoming people. They already are. So I think that led to a lot of our success because we were, you know, serving coffee in a way that was just happy and and welcoming. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about the job training process. For refugees, the resettlement process can be very daunting trying to find a job, learn English, learn their way around the city. What does Refuge Coffee provide in training employees? We've gone through several iterations of what that looks like, and we are definitely in a rebuilding season of that training. So full disclosure, we're, I would say we're, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. We do not teach English classes. We provide opportunities for English classes if that's needed. I mean, if you think about it, serving the public coffee for eight hours a day is a great English class. It just really is. And 
We have in the past provided GED training or mentorship. Um, mentorship is a big part of our training and COVID made that especially challenging and it sort of ground to a halt for a while because we just couldn't add another Zoom thing for people. <laughs> so there is on the job training, of course people learn how to be excellent baristas and they are amazing baristas. That isn't always the end goal. The end goal is to provide a job that pays enough for someone to breathe and live in the community rather than have to drive an hour and a half away to a chicken processing plant, to speak English with their neighbors. There's a lot of organic stuff that goes on. We didn't realize how powerful that would be till we had done it a while. Most people who go through our program leave with this vast network of friends and people who are ready to offer them opportunities when they leave. So that's that's a big part of it. We're working on defining what our training tracks are because not everybody wants to go to college, but as you probably know, an interrupted education is one of the big heartbreaks of the refugee crisis. People are, you know, in a camp or fleeing and not able to pursue their education. So that's one of my favorite things when we have someone come and join our team and they've assumed that college is just out of the question because they aged out of high school and you know and, and yet we see this potential and some of them really really want to pursue high, higher education and we've been able to mentor and help with training to get people there so you know i would say that our training is almost as varied as the type of people that we have with us but that's what I love about it because it enables us to find out where people want to go. And sometimes if you're, if you have just survived a long season of trauma, you don't know where you want to go yet. You need space to figure that out. And so that's something we feel like we give is that space. And we, we chose to make our training a year to 18 months because we wanted to go deep rather than wide. So we have people stay with us, you know, longer than the average job training program. And then because we've grown, we've give we have opportunities for growth within our own business. So we've had people at every level, almost every level of our the business side of what we do, who are former refugees and immigrants who came up through our training. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with Kitty Murray, the founder and CEO of Refuge Coffee. On the topic of your growth, congratulations on opening this new location at the Woodruff Arts Center. Why did the Woodruff Arts Center seem a great partnership for this new Refuge Coffee? How do your missions align? Our main mission is employment and uh, empowering our employees through training. And so any growth, you know, on the face of it is a good idea because it gives us a chance to create more jobs and more leadership opportunities. So that there's that, you know, we always say that our, our mission, if we boiled it down to one word would just be the word welcome. And I love the welcoming work that the arts does and the way Woodruff on all their different iterations welcomes and 
widen space for people rather than narrowing it. And that just made so much sense to us that we could be here. And plus, we were invited to be here and it was such a beautiful opportunity. We love being in this part of the city. Yeah, I think we've yet to see all the reasons, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, so the Woodruff invited you? Yes, yes. Oh, that's great. Isn't that amazing? I know. It does feel like, probably you can tell from my personal story, so much of this feels almost accidental. You know, we, like happy accidents happen all the time. And, and we get opportunities that we would have never even known to seek out. And yet they happen. And again, it speaks to, I think our world is a lot more welcoming and generous than than it is represented to us often, you know? And so- well, that's encouraging to hear, Kitty. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's I, very I, heartening. Well, and I will say that, you know, we work with some of the most systemically unwelcomed people on the planet. And to watch them- they already know how to welcome people. They have this open heartedness that is just beautiful to see. So I do feel like I live in a little bit of a bubble because I know, I know there's a lot of, you know, unwelcome, unkindness, lack of generosity out there. And for us, you know, activism is wonderful. I love it. I love, I'm grateful that people do that kind of work. Activism is often highlighting things that shouldn't be, you know? And so I think for Refuge, kind of our focus, and maybe it's because we're a coffee shop and there's just this thing about coffee and how great it tastes and smells and how fun it is to have together. But we just like to highlight the way things should be, you know, and the way they are in a lot of parts of the world. So I do feel like my vision is a little skewed, but in a good way. How does each purchase of coffee or baked goods, merchandise, how does each purchase at Refuge Coffee benefit the refugees? We invest in our training. You know, we invest in paying a living wage. We invest in all the things surrounding training. And so anytime anybody buys a cup of coffee, they contribute to that investment because there is no way we could do all the things we do without the business side of what we do as well. And you, when you do that, you participate in this, this whole thing. You know, you are buying it literally from someone who came from a part of the world that where there's conflict. Most of them currently there's conflict. And so you're contributing to that person's life and livelihood. I know that you have had some special events, multicultural events. Would you describe a few of them or some that you will offer when gathering is easier? <laughs> when we're allowed to again? Sure. Yes. You know, one of my favorites is several years ago, a friend in the community who is a cardiologist, he's a Kurdish man from Syria. Dr. Habal Kelly, he called me and he said, gosh, I, I'm going to get the year wrong. I want to say it was 2017, but he said, this is the first year the White House has not hosted an iftar dinner. Iftar is the every night breaking of the fast during Ramadan. And he said, you know, 
this is the first time in over 40 years. And he said, and our community isn't really mad about that, but we're, we're kind of hurt by that. And he said, do you think Refuge could host an iftar dinner? And as we got to talking about it, the only time to do it was like six days from when he and I had this conversation. And we were hosting something else that same day during the day. But I went to our staff and I said, you know, our Muslim community has asked us for this. What do you think? And they said, how can we not do this? And so we hosted a potluck iftar dinner. Several hundred people came that night. We had, we had someone who brought hula hoops. We hula hooped. We had the imam from the local mosque come and do the call to prayer. We served food at sunset. It was a, there was a dance party that was very impromptu at the very end. And it was, I have friends who still say that was the favorite night of my entire life. Like it was just, and it was so fun. It was people from mosques and churches and um, someone from a temple came and families and everyone brought food. And it was just a really special night. And we, we did that for the next year or two. And then COVID put a stop to it for now. That's one of my favorites. We also do a market every spring and every Christmas. And this last year, I think we had two or 3,000 people attend this market. And we've been able to do it because we're the Clarkston location is the parking lot's pretty big. We can spread vendors out, but we really work to engage with local vendors or people who serve refugees or in countries where refugees are. And that market is so fun. Again, I think fun is my you know favorite adjective for all of this, but it is just a really fun event. We have musicians and food and and we'll do one again in the spring. So those are some bigger ones. And you know, I love that people just gather at refuge. You know, there are homeschooling groups that will gather there. Our people in the community, the resettlement agencies offices are not far from us. And so they'll have meetings there. And and again, that isn't as much now, but we look for that to happen more often. I recall now that wonderful film about Clarkston that featured the cardiologist you mentioned, and also depicted that fantastic iftar gathering. Oh, that was so special. I forgot that. Yes, it's such a good film. Yes. Kitty, what have you observed in terms of the impact of Refuge Coffee on your employees' lives? Oh, that's a hard question for me because I really, I think our impact work, if it isn't reciprocal, it isn't very healthy, you know? (laughs) So I hope we have made an impact. I think our impact is partially, there. well, there are two things and I I can do this more anecdotally. One of our employees part-time here at Midtown came back from being in our program and leaving to go to college. And and she is one of those people who really wanted to go to college and just 
didn't think she would ever have that opportunity. And she's now studying aerospace engineering at tech. Like she is a rock star. And I remember she told me halfway through the program, she said, when you interviewed me, you asked me what my dreams were for my future. And she said, I went home and cried because no one had ever asked me that. That just wasn't on the table. So I do think, you know, giving space, you know, creating an environment and space where people can dream, well, then they do the rest. And what they do is phenomenal. So I would say that's one thing. I'm, I'm really just proud that, that all we did was create the open door. Uh, we don't even really open the door. We just sort of point to it, you know? <laughs> and I would also say Leon Shambana, who was our first trainee, and he is now our customer experience coordinator as <laughs> a fancy title. He used to say early on, we want to put Clarkston on the map. We want people to know that Clarkston's here. And I really think in some ways, Leon and Ali and, you know, Samaya, and I could just name all these names have really done that. For me, that's encouraging because I do think Clarkston is related to this big global crisis the refugee crisis. And it's easy to look at a crisis, a global one, and have opinions about it and not see it as human. And so I do love that Clarkston is a good reminder that this is a human crisis. And and the people that live in Clarkston are hopeful and want to have a future and want to work hard and don't want to take anything from anybody. They just want to be able to live freely and as contributors. And, you know, there's a 87% of refugees in Georgia. And I think this is a 2017 statistic, but 87% within six months were self-sufficient. So that just speaks to me to this group of people who are overcomers. And so I do love that refuge gets to tell the world that in a small way. Kitty Murray, founder and CEO of Refuge Coffee. Their new location is open now at the Woodruff Arts Center. By the way, did you know WABE is having a scavenger hunt on January 26th from noon to 2 p.m.? It's a search for new WABE swag that we'll place at eight locations across the city, and this segment just had a location clue. Follow WABE on social media at WABEATL to learn more. In a moment, we'll check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix for the next installment of our series, Punk Black To Go. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon, Punk Black. And he joins us monthly to highlight local artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Here's Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Thanks, Lois. Greetings, my friends. This is City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the rock, art, cosplay, and nerd lore communities. Each month, I'll be joining the City Lights team to bring you new music from the Punk Black scene that I love, and I know you'll fall in love with as well. So without further ado, here's some new bands that you need to listen to this month. First up, we have The Blood Plums. I'm not gonna lie, in about 10 years, I bet you crack open a dictionary, a digital dictionary, mind you, and look up punk music, and I bet you it just says, see Blood Plums. Their music is so punk and so driving that it can literally be the soundtrack to anything. Action chasing, Blood Plums. Party scene, Blood Plums. Saving a country from a racist government scene, Blood Plums. Don't believe me? Here's a sample of their song, Dirty Cops. That was a sample of Dirty Cops by Blood Plums. They're on Instagram as the Blood Plums Official. That's the underscore Blood Plums underscore official. Next up, we have Meet Me at the Altar. All right, before I get into how amazing this band is, let me hit you with a few dad vibes and just say I am so proud of them. They're one of the bands out there right now kicking butt and literally taking over the scene. They signed to one of my favorite labels, Fuel by Ramen. I'm a little jealous, to be honest. I've always loved them since I was a kid. And they're doing some amazing things. I can't wait to see what they'll accomplish this year and next year and for all time, to be honest. But dad vibes aside, this band is amazing. As someone who grew up in the pop punk emo era, I love this band. Powerful drops, great vocals, and their energy is literally on fire. You'll see what I mean. Here's a sample of this song, Garden. That was Meet Me at the Altar and their song, Garden. More information is available via their Instagram, 
at M-M-A-T-A-BAN. That's M-M-A-T-A-BAN. Last, but certainly not least for today, we have Lucibu Grand. First of all, let me say I had the most difficult time choosing which sample of a song to choose for them. Seriously, this band could be recognized as like a hit song machine. They turn out songs that stretch multiple genres, including pop punk, classic rock, hard rock, and even some EDM remixes, which is crazy. They're one of the household names of the punk black Atlanta scene, and here's a spoiler for you. Not only will Punk Black be throwing an official South by Southwest showcase this year, but Lacebo Grand will be performing. I, for one, cannot wait to see them melt hearts, faces, and probably bank so accounts. But don't take my word for it. Here's a sample of their song, I'm Not Sorry. That was I'm Not Sorry by Lucibu Grand. You can find them on Instagram at Lucibu Grand. That's L-E-S-I-B-U Grand. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. More information about the band's mentioned today is available at WABE.org slash City Lights and, of course, PunkBlock.com. For WABE City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other. Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix president and co-founder of Atlanta's Punk Black. The last band Vaughn mentioned today was Atlanta's Le Cibu Grand. Coming up, we'll listen back to our June interview with Le Cibu Grand and hear the story behind their music. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. Atlanta's power punk pop outfit, Le Cibu Grand, was named one of the top 100 bands to watch last year by Alternative Press, with lyrics that take on racism, social justice, and reproductive rights. Many critics think their music is hitting the right note at the right time. This past June, singer Tyler Simone Moulton and bassist John Renault joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes via Zoom, and Moulton began with how she and Renault met and then re-met years later. So John and I have known each other for over 10 years. I met him originally when he worked with my mother, and I would go into work and visit my mom and see John being John. I was being John. (laughs) He was always super nice and friendly, but we got reacquainted a few years ago when we went to see a show at the Earl separately because he was with his wife and I was with my friend, and we ran into each other. I pointed him out from the crowd. I was like, hey, are you John Renault? And he said, Jennifer, which is my sister's name, (laughs) (laughs) and didn't know who I was. 
all the way, but uh, I made it clear it was Tyler, the other sister. I did recognize her, but last time I had seen her, she was like in high school. So, you know, it was probably seven or eight years in between since I had seen her. So she had changed a little bit, but I it didn't take me long to dial in my <laughs> memories. But it was very exciting to see Tyler again and see that she was like having fun in the city and, and at a cool show. It was uh, the Pains of Being Pure at Heart, which are a Brooklyn indie band. So it was a super great night. You know, it was really great to see her. And she had mentioned that she was kind of interested in music. I I think I may have seen on Facebook that she was singing with... uh, Dylan uh, Michael and the family. I was in that band at the time. So yeah, you did mention, you were like, oh yeah, I see what you've been doing. And actually you did mention, you were like talking about Cadillac Jones, your other band, and said that it might be cool if we did something in the same vein as like MIA or Santi Gold. Mm-hmm. And then we were talking about possibly collaborating and that's kind of how the conversation got sparked. That's quick. So your first time seeing each other again after 10 years, you were like, let's talk music, let's make music. <laughs> yes. You know, the kind of talk you sure, have while a Sure, sure. I'd love to you. work with you yeah, one day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we should do something together. Yeah, um, exactly. But Tyler kind of took the first step in a way. Yeah, I reached out on Facebook and I was like, you know what? Why not? And I was like, hey, remember when we talked about doing something together? Let's do it. (laughs) And then we met up for coffee and talked about a game plan. He brought in uh, Brian and Lee and the rest is history. Right on. And who is Brian and Lee? Brian is our guitar player. Brian Turner. uh, Brian Turner, the turn man. Um, nobody calls him that, but (laughs) (laughs) maybe they'll start. And then Lee Wiggins is our drummer. Your meeting story really points to your age difference. It kind of draws a circle around it. Yeah. (laughs) How does that work within your music as far as what influences are you pulling from? So I think there's a blend. Um, I definitely pull for more of like the late nineties, early two thousands and punk rock and alt rock like Paramore, Panic at the Disco, those types of things. And so John probably pulls from like an earlier 90s rock because he was really into the rock scene. True. I I mean, I I like genres through all ages, but I really came of age in the late 80s, early 90s when like Pixies and Fugazi and Nirvana and Mudhoney were all coming up. So that's kind of like my center of gravity. But I feel like because we came up in different eras, we we have different backgrounds in music. And so to me, it's fun. And, you know, to hear music that Tyler likes or bands that she's into and try to figure them out and how to make it fit to what I like. And if we get to the point where we get a song that both of us like, then I feel like it's going to have some dimension to it. Well, let's talk about Not Sweet Enough. It touches a bit on women's rights and assumptions of appropriate female behavior. What was your writing process on this particular song? So I definitely wanted to have a song that spoke about issues that were personal to me, but also that were relevant to what's going on, especially in Georgia with the government regulations on women's rights. So we thought it was a good time to kind of write a song in a punk fashion because that's historically what punk does is talk about the man and how to stick it to the man and stuff. Do you feel like in a lot of your songs, you're starting to bring up things that are important to you that way? And was that originally a goal or some sort of a a morph? I think it was probably more of a morph. I feel like we kind of did take a a bit of a turn halfway through uh, the Trump era. I think our natural tendency is to 
like sing about we're, we're both really positive people we would sing about happier things or emotions or romance but like the world was just kind of it felt like it was just getting worse and worse and it felt like a little bit almost irresponsible or also just oblivious to keep writing like songs that were sort of you know lighthearted nature sudden it just felt really easy to write songs that were pointing out all these glaring problems with our society and like in just all this rock and roll coming out and like finding a home and all these sentiments that we shared you recently collaborated with a guy who goes by the name of the punk cellist right yes i'd love for you to tell a little bit about just how you ended up connecting with him and and what you created the punk cellist is a young performer in the Cape Cod area that has a very awesome Instagram feed where he just does covers of punk classics with his cello. And it's amazing because he captures the energy of it and also like the awesome melodies that are in punk that sometimes get obscured by just all the volume and anger. But like he just distills it down. So we're big fans of his. And so we reached out to him and asked if he wanted to do a collaboration with us on not sweet enough and he was open to it and he does like multiple tracks and it was going to be just purely instrumental but then we also took the main melody out and let tyler sing it so we have another version of it where tyler is singing in operatic form while he's playing as a cellist you want you think i'm dirty i'm dirty and unworthy and yet you're always looking back at me So we brought him over to Dan Dixon's studio uh, at Please Please, and we um, kind of just mixed them down and added some percussion that Lee Wiggins put in, and together we kind of created this classical ensemble around the song for Tyler singing. It's really amazing, and I did not know your vocals could do that. Um, this is definitely the first time that I have let other people hear me sing in this style, so that's groundbreaking and new for me, and it's exciting because I'm interested in exploring this kind of style uh, more openly. It was definitely fun <laughs> to sing because I kind of imagine myself as an opera singer, a classical one that's on like a big stage and a really cool dress, and yeah, I could get down with that. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes. And I'm talking to Lacibu Grands, Tyler Simone Moulton, and John Renault. It seemed as though your video content really, really amped up. And I was wondering if that was something that you had planned for or if that was 
some sort of result of the pandemic and just having more time and not playing live. I think it was a little of both. We definitely had planned to make more music videos for each release, but the pandemic definitely gave us an opportunity to do that. So it was helpful in a way. Tyler's right. One thing that's different with this band than, I, than any other band I've been in is that we do a video for pretty much every song. And so every one gets its own treatment, gets its own sort of attention. And we kind of live the vibe of that song and that video for like months. And I think we would have done that even if COVID didn't hit. But when COVID hit, there was nothing else to do but make videos. So I feel like we just went much bigger on them. It became the only thing we did really for a while. It felt like we were more like, you know, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, content creators more than a band. And, and that was, Kind of fun, but it's also really, really good to get back to being a band. <laughs> Definitely. I get that. So the video for Hot Glue Gun has our hero, Tyler Simone, being hunted by John, who I can only <laughs> assume you're playing the man. Myself. <laughs> I mean, I would never do any harm to my very close friend, but I am a bit of a taskmaster, so in some respects there was... Uh, some a, symbolism Some there. symbolism there. <laughs> share a little bit of that filming process because I know that was filmed here in Atlanta in one of our city's favorite spots right For sure joystick game bar is a spot which I have spent many a night losing on the Pac-Man high score but uh, it was really cool to shoot that video there because you know it's very signature for atlanta and then it has like the video game aspects so it was really nice to do it there the first video for hot glue gun the original was we filmed primarily on a green screen in my garage here in edgewood section of atlanta early in the COVID era so we were hyper paranoid and really yeah. pretty uncomfortable and we had of course masks and like just at that early stage you really just didn't know how right. how dangerous everything was and it felt honestly like we were maybe taking unnecessary risks by even doing it at all it was only cameraman and tyler in the garage like we just didn't have anybody hanging around or taking pictures or whatever we were just like super careful and then the whole video is actually Tyler inside a video game, like a 90s era video game, mm -hmm. beating up, you know, people, myself included, <laughs> and tackling a would-be Trump type of character and taking him down. And so guys thought, oh, it'd be cool if we started as the video with Tyler walking into an arcade and putting a quarter in just to set the stage. Yeah. So that's when we, we called over to Joystick and they, you know, no bars were open at the time, so they let us come and film. Uh, now, we had Dan Dixon who, from Please Please remix that song and he did a totally different version. It's like much more like electronic dance music style and it's darker.
so it vibes totally differently. Um, Post-apocalyptic vibe. Yeah, but I would say one other thing that that experience taught me for sure is that like I like having two versions of every song, at least two, because you know there's so many different ways to do a song. Like you mm-hmm. don't, it sucks that you could only if you only get to do one. So like instead have two versions of it that show different ways it could be perceived or felt. That's kind of how I. I feel like we're falling into that pattern and I like that a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of people might not realize how much genuinely good art gets thrown away within the creative process just so you can land somewhere. Right, just because you have to pick the best version that you put out. All right, going back to the videos at Joystick, I feel like we might have buried the lead a little bit because this remix has a different video and the video has an element to it that I personally have never seen before. I don't know how common it is, but it has an AR filter. How does that work? Well, the AR filter works by a person using their cellular device um, and (laughs) going on Instagram and using your head as a pointer. Basically, it's like a first-person shooter game and you're using your head to control your direction. So your video has become a game. For sure. So we we did take the music from the remix and we created a video game that is played in the stories section of Instagram. And you hit this little icon with the three little stars and it launches a filter that is actually a game where you can shoot uh, these roses that are coming at you. Pace Magazine uh, indicated that it was one of the first ways to vibe on a, on music this way. And it was just a way for us to put music in a, somewhere where people didn't expect it. Like, I c- now consider it part of the, the fun of being an artist is not just creating work, but like finding new ways to get people to interact with that work. So if like, you're playing a video game and you hear hot glue gun in the background and you're shooting stuff and having fun like that is how especially younger generations connect with music so that gave us a chance to reach them the cebu grands john renault and tyler simone moulton speaking with city light senior producer kim Drobes. you can listen to that entire interview on our website wabe.org slash city lights by the way, Le Cibou Grand is performing with Howling Star tomorrow, January 21st, at Bog Social and Supply in Atlanta's West End neighborhood. Finally, the American photographer Steve Shapiro died Saturday from pancreatic cancer. He was 87. The photojournalist was celebrated for his work documenting the American Civil Rights Movement and the Selma to Montgomery March. Life magazine called Steve Shapiro to Memphis to document the tragedy unfolding after the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968. Last year, we spoke with Steve Shapiro about his show with Sheila Pree Bright at Jackson Fine Art Gallery in Atlanta. We'll listen back to highlights from that conversation tomorrow. Also, tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from directors Sean Curran and tenor Santiago Ballerini about the Atlanta Opera's upcoming performances of Gilbert and Sullivan's 
Pirates of Penzance. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at Let. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.